Og lige nu her på DR1 sidder Tine Goethe klar til at præsentere TV-avisen. Hier ist das erste deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau. At the beginning I used to count the years. Then I started counting the months. This is Alioniane. 33 years ago he was sent on a student exchange. It lasted five years. I was there 22 years old. I was depressed. I cried all the time. Alu didn't choose to go himself. He was sent to study abroad by his government in West Africa, the Guinean one. Regardless of my opinion on the country, I had no other choice but take the flight and go to North Korea. Alu got on a flight and ended up spending five years in the most isolated country of the world. He doesn't hesitate to compare his time in North Korea to a prison sentence. Today, he's 55 years old. He lives with his family in Boston, the U.S., And he only recently started talking about the five years he spent in North Korea. Before becoming a U.S. citizen, he didn't feel safe. That's given me some protection compared to being a Guinean and wanting to write about North Korea or say anything bad or good or whatever indifferent about North Korea. So that makes a little bit difference. Why was a young West African man sent to study in North Korea in the first place, you ask? Well, you can find the answer on this episode of Planet Mundus. But Alu's story is only one small part of something bigger. A story of illegal arms deals, geopolitics, a thousand artists and ivory smuggling diplomats. This is the story of North Korea's Africa strategy. Wait, North Korea has an Africa strategy? They do, and it's actually not as crazy as you'd think. We always hear about North Korea as this crazy, irrational place. And maybe that's because reporting seriously on a country as isolated as North Korea is hard. As Alu says, North Korea is really challenging. I mean, when it comes to news, it's difficult. On this episode, we'll try anyway. Besides Alu, we'll talk to experts who help us understand both what is happening today and the historical background of North Korea's actions in Africa. I'm Ole Krosko. And I'm Freja Eriksen. You're listening to Planet Mundus. But hold on, let's get back to Alu for a moment. In 1982, for his 70th birthday, the old North Korean leader Kim Il-sung invited a horde of foreign dignitaries to North Korea. Among them was the Guinean president Ahmed Sokuture. As Alu explains it, Guinea was in some sense a copy of the North Korean communist model, totalitarian system, militaristic mindset, public executions, that kind of thing. So Ture came back inspired. Kim Il-sung asked him to send 10 of his students to North Korea to be educated under what they call the Juche ideology. The Guinean president came back, he asked for a national exam. And I was one of the 10 students who were qualified to be sent to North Korea. We didn't know where we were going to until after the exam. As you can probably imagine, the young West African man didn't exactly have a deep knowledge about the communist regime on the other side of the world. Like, for example, the Juche ideology, the special North Korean bent of communism that's all about being completely self-reliant. Alu had some homework to do. Back then, as you may know, in 1982, no, no internet. So the little information I got was between the embassy of Korea, whatever they had in their propaganda magazines, 
and uh, the encyclopedia, the French encyclopedia. It was so beautiful. Um, uh, the pictures were uh, very vivid, picturing happy country, great uh, development. I was very impressed. But... And there was a but. Reading the encyclopedias, Aliyu realized that the same family had ruled North Korea for more than 20 years. And he noted a war with South Korea. But as he points out... Even if I did not want to go, I had no other choice. This decision had been taken for him. The Guinean president wanted Aliyu to go and learn about the North Korean ways of agriculture. Only once he got there did he understand what North Korea was getting in return. You can tell exactly that North Korea had an interest in one thing. It was to have more votes at the United Nations. So they needed UN votes from African countries. Alyoniane was just a pawn on a diplomatic chessboard. After the end of the Korean War in 1953, the two Koreas started competing to be recognized as the one true representative of Korea. Whoever had more votes in the UN had the diplomatic upper hand. And by helping out Guinea, North Korea gained one more African vote. It can seem crazy that North Korea could even challenge South Korea. To understand why, you need to know that North Korea hasn't always been the country we know of today. It's important to note that North Korea surpassed South Korea in most indicators of economic output until the mid-1970s. So North Korea wasn't always an economic basket case like it is today. This is Benjamin Young. He's a PhD student of North Korean history at the George Washington University. And so you may think, oh, these crazy African dictators, what would they find uh, admiring in the North Korean model? Well, there was rapid industrialization, and there was also the militarization of North Korean society. And this really appealed to African dictators who were looking for stability. It's interesting because for like I was born in 88 and I only know North Korea as the basket case. Yes. A country, a country that doesn't work. And the idea that anybody would want to follow the North Korean lead seems absurd. Yes, definitely, definitely. But communists around the world uh, from the 1960s to the 1980s found the North Korean model uh, admirable. And maybe they, they had a better point than, than it looks from today's perspective. Most definitely. Most definitely. When, when you uh, compared uh, South Korea to North Korea in 1960, you would definitely say uh, North Korea was the more uh, successful government on the Korean peninsula. South Korea's GDP in 1960 was roughly equivalent to that of Afghanistan. So South Korea's economy was close to that of Afghanistan, and North Korea was actually doing okay. Taking in foreign students was just one way of flattering other UN nations. North Korea had a whole PR strategy to prove that they were the coolest Korea. So you have this kind of very bizarre uh, publicity campaign uh, by the two Koreas. They established embassies in far-flung parts of the world. They put advertisements uh, in newspapers, for example, North Korea put advertisements talking about the greatness of Kim Il-sung in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. How successful was this strategy? Did, did North Korea actually enjoy any successes in the UN because of their diplomatic efforts? Uh, South Korea, I believe, was always ahead of North Korea 
uh, in diplomatic recognition. But at, at a point, in, I think maybe the 1970s, Seoul was worried that North Korea was gaining popularity as a result of their, their propaganda in the third world. So to sum up, North Korea has been active in Africa since the 1960s. According to Young, this activity has had two goals, becoming the one true Korea and rich. To earn money, North Korea has been engaged in some rather surprising schemes. One of them led us to Senegal. On the outskirts of Dakar in Senegal, visitors can admire a 50 meter tall bronze statue. It's placed on a hilltop and features a lightly dressed woman, her buff husband, who's holding their young son in his arms. The sun is pointing out towards the Atlantic Ocean. It's called the African Renaissance Monument and has been controversial in Senegal since its unveiling in 2010. It's been criticized for having cartoon-like un-African body figures and even been called Stalinist. Stalinist it ain't, but close enough maybe. The statue was built in North Korea. We first heard about the statues in a movie called Mansu Day Art Studio, made by the South Korean artist Won Jun Che. In the movie, he travels to the African countries where North Koreans have erected statues. In Senegal, he meets the architect Pierre Gudiabi Atzeba, who designed the African Renaissance Monument. This is him. Big bronze sculptures. Only North Koreans know how to do it. They're the best. No question about it. The movie is named after the place where the North Korean statues are made, the Mansaday Art Studio. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the words art studio, but you're probably thinking of something wrong. This is definitely not your average art studio. For starters, it's huge. It might very well be the biggest art factory in the world with 4,000 employees. Not all the employees are typical factory workers doing low-level blue-collar work. They have 1,000 artists, and all of them are handpicked top of their classes from North Korea's best art academies. And these artists are responsible for every piece of art related to the dear leader and his family. Statues, portraits, label pins. If it features the leaders, they've made it in Mansoday Art Studio. And if you produce a huge amount of art, why not try to make a buck out of it? The studio sells statues in Africa. At least eight different African countries are among their customers. But even the German town Frankfurt has bought art from Mansaday. Actually, from the studio's official website, you can buy some of their art too. The goal for the North Korean regime is foreign capital. And the money is actually really important. A large part of it goes to make sure that the well-to-do elite class in North Korea is satisfied. In essence, they have to be bought off to avoid challenges to the leadership of Kim Jong-un. Maybe that's necessary because the North Korean model doesn't seem that great to anyone anymore. Already back in Alunyanis, North Korea, things were changing for the regime's economy. As it turned out, the situation wasn't quite as rosy as it looked in the propaganda materials. His impression of North Korea quickly changed once he landed at Pyongyang Airport in 1982. My first impression of North, North Korea is, uh, I believe, one Monday morning very chilly, early December, Monday morning. My surprise was that, oh no, this is not the country that I have to go because the airport was very small. Then we get inside. I immediately saw poverty. People were poor. You can see by their face, the dress. People were really miserable. Truly, I was truly shocked. 
Alyu started noticing the details that told another story of North Korea than the official one. In North Korea, I noticed I could see people's bones in the face. The lack of food was visible. I noticed one thing that I never seen anywhere in the world. Everybody has a picture of Kim Il-sung. Back then it was Kim Il-sung on every single shirt. From the waitress to the professors to the minister of education we met. Every single person has it. Even though Alyu and the other exchange students were in North Korea for five years, they were not meant to mingle with the citizens. In classes at the university, they were placed two by two, one Korean sitting next to one foreign student. But they were not to eat in the same room as the North Koreans. And aside from their classmates, no other students were permitted to enter their building. In short, it was hard to get to know any North Korean people. I don't think I know any first name of any Koreans I met, except probably our professors. That is unbelievable. I never push too hard to find out about the names of the Koreans. You say that you are, your name is Kim or Park or Lee. I stop there because I know the risk that you are taking to talk to me. Normal Koreans are not allowed to interact with us. We know that uh, publicly interacting with citizens is a danger to their lives. What Alyu and the others were allowed to was learning about the North Korean mindset and Juche ideology. In fact, they didn't have much choice but to listen. All 10 of us, we used to joke. We said, we are coming at 22 years old and the North Koreans are thinking of brainwashing us already. North Korean told us the following. We are a pure race. We are not mixed to any other race, even the Chinese. We speak one language. We are basically the best and pure nation you can ever find on the earth. But there might also have been another motive behind the teachings, suggests Salyu. The purpose of telling us that we are pure race, we take it, okay, don't mess up with our girls. Still, Alyu and the others found ways to connect with the locals. Being at that age, 22, 27 years old, we need to make friends. So we often get out at night. <laughs> Alyu remembers the conversations with local Koreans quite well. Of course, there was a big difference between talking to officials and ordinary citizens. As for the officials... They have their narrative, a script that they should follow and tell us all the Juche ideas. But when it came to the ordinary citizens... These people were very nice. They are human. <laughs> and it's the same way we are certainly curious about them, the same way they were curious about us. They want to know, who are you? Why are you here? And how, how do you live in your country? Once we build an intimacy with you, where you meet them multiple times, you will see that they are first curious about knowing how free are you in your country? During his time in North Korea, Alyu was often met with these kinds of questions, but the fun would always end there. The five years I spent there, I never met a Korean who would tell me that I want to change the regime. You may feel it. You may feel that they envy. They want to know how free you are. But you will never hear somebody saying that they wish that the government collapse changes or something. No. No. 
Alyu never returned to North Korea or his home country Guinea. He's seen enough totalitarian regimes in his life. But he still thinks fondly of his best professors from North Korea. And he wishes North and South would unite so he could visit again, this time as a tourist and not a pawn in a chess game of world powers. So far we've been talking about a pretty benign North Korean Africa strategy, focused on getting either diplomatic support or cold cash. But in some cases the worlds of international diplomacy and money-making are very hard to tell apart. Consider for example that North Korean diplomats don't really get paid. Benjamin Young told us that they're actually expected to send money back to Pyongyang. That has consequences. North Korean diplomats have been caught at least nine different times since the early 1980s smuggling ivory from Africa to Asia, and the most recent one was uh, last year when a North Korean was caught smuggling $36,000 worth of ivory out of Mozambique. And then you also, there's also a, uh, a story of North Korean diplomats in Zambia who uh, commandeered the embassy's bus and they and turned it into a taxi for locals in order to earn hard currency. So you have these North Korean diplomats turn taxi drivers. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the stuff that makes you think of North Korea as a bit of a basket case. Yes, yes. So you kind of, you, on, on one hand, you do kind of sympathize with these North Korean diplomats. <laughs> because they're, yeah. they, they are basically, you know, they have to make some, some, uh, some money. And so they dabble in the in the uh, exchange of endangered species products which is horrendous which is horrendous uh, but it's because Pyongyang does not support them my, my argument is that North Korean diplomats are the most juche of all North Koreans they have to be the most self-reliant <laughs> yeah, I can see that there's still an important way North Korea makes money that we haven't touched on it might be the most important one. The country has a so-called military-first strategy, where the needs of the military are highly prioritized. Analysts estimate that North Korea has the fourth largest standing army in the world. That means that North Korea has a lot of know-how about all things military. In June, a UN report detailed how North Korea is violating the UN sanctions by selling weapons and training military in Angola. It has previously been discovered that they've done similar deals with Uganda and Tanzania. Another UN report from 2010 estimates that North Korea makes $100 million a year through illegal arms sales. But it's very hard to tell precisely because all the deals are done in secret. There might be a lot more that the international community doesn't know about. North Korea needs foreign capital, so it's easy to understand why they want to sell. But why would countries want to risk angering the West by doing illegal trades with the regime? You gotta wonder who's buying the weapons. He has to be from a country that doesn't really care what the U.S. thinks, doesn't care what the West thinks. This is Samuel Ramani. He's an Oxford student who writes in the Washington Post about North Korea's foreign strategy. He explains that missiles and military expertise are two of North Korea's top exports. They sell ballistic missiles, for example, or weapons or technology to Nigeria, for example. In exchange, they help them build facilities so they can produce the weapons that they're being sold. That's kind of how North Korea sells itself. That's the advantage that it gets. By teaching the countries how to build the weapons themselves, North Korea is literally destroying its own business, in the long run at least. 
but it's a rational trade-off. It's what makes North Korea interesting to buyers. Rational may not be the first word you think of when someone mentions North Korea, but that's a mistake, at least if you ask Samuel Romani. I think that the biggest uh, common uh, misunderstanding about North Korea is that they think that their decision-making is entirely irrational. You see the cult of personality. Um, you see so much wasteful spending in, in the military and glorification projects and these kind of things. And we look at this and we see, how can this be real? How, this, is, this is an irrational government led by a bunch of thugs and crazies. But the reality is their policy is much more organized and much more complex than that. They may be evil, but they're not crazy. So our conclusion is that North Korea might be evil, but at least they're not crazy? Well, as it turns out, North Korea does have an Africa strategy, a rational one at that. And it's not some relic we've dug up from the past. It's still going strong today. Keep that in mind next time you read an article about how Kim Jong-un has commanded all male university students to get the same haircut as him. Maybe there is a rational foreign policy strategy behind it. We hope this episode has at least given you some small talk ammunition for your next swinger party or political science class. We've at least learned quite a lot during the production of this episode. For one thing, sometimes, to learn about North Korea, you have to go to Africa. And that's it for this episode of Planet Mundus. Thanks a lot for listening in. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can tweet to us on Twitter, you can write to us on Facebook, and you can listen to more episodes on planetmundus.com, SoundCloud, or your podcast app. This episode of Planet Mundus was produced by Freja Eriksen, Ole Korsgaard, Vavara Marosova, and Jan Willems. From Planet Mundus, we wish you a great day. Just...